Throughout our history, monuments made of stone have served many diverse purposes. Sometimes they have been utilized to mark a place of importance. Other stone monuments commemorate events of historical significance, such as battles or landmark decisions. Cave and cliff walls have been discovered all over the world depicting the history of civilizations long gone. Biblically, the Ten Commandments were of such importance that they had to be written on stone tablets carved right out of the side of a mountain. In other eras, stone carvings have been used as devices for artistic expressions. Further examples include stone tablets preserving the written language and hieroglyphics of civilizations long past. Mount Rushmore, the Olmaic stone heads, the Statue of David, the ancient Colossus of Rhodes, Colossa Temple in India. We would be remiss not to mention one of the most famous and oldest stone monuments known to us, even if its purpose isn't entirely agreed upon or clear, Stonehenge. And of course, stone has been utilized as memorials, landmarks celebrating the life or accomplishments of people who have passed on. It seems that archaeological sites often turn up the stone remnants of our past. So, why stone? The reason is quite simple. It's a way for us to mark the location of our graves to commemorate our lives, keep a record of our family heritage, and to leave some small historical record of our time here on Earth. You see, Stone was expected to last through the test of time. On the corner of Yale Road and Ralph Weitzel Drive, a little over a half a mile south of the Marshall County Courthouse, stands a landmark, a landmark made of stone. If you were to take a few minutes to stop and look at this landmark, you would find that etched into the surface is a list of 64 names. The names of Marshall County's Revolutionary War veterans. One of those names is Captain Arthur Sheffield. The Marshall County High School History Club presents the Book of Marshall. Marshall County, Tennessee is home to a rich and diverse history. Thank you for joining us as we investigate the past and preserve our stories for the future. The echoes of our past reverberate all the way through today. All we have to do is listen. Welcome to the Book of Marshall. Arthur Sheffield was born on September 12, 1750. While it isn't certain, some sources indicate that he was the son of John Sheffield of Duplin County, North Carolina. Not much is known of Arthur's early life prior to the Revolutionary War. He may have had some family who were veterans of the French and Indian War, however it is not clear how closely they were related. It was around the time near the beginning of the Revolutionary War that Arthur married Lucretia Hogan, who was born on November 3, 1756. It is also known that they were married in Virginia. It is here then that it would be appropriate to acknowledge the flaw of many of the monuments and memorials we mentioned earlier. We have names, dates, results and outcomes of battles and events, and final works of art. But what is often not etched in stone? are the details. Specific accounts of history are much harder to come by the further back we go. So here, we will study the area and events around Sheffield to understand what his experiences might have been. There just aren't enough complete records available mentioning Arthur Sheffield from this time in his life. We do know that North Carolina during the colonial period was known for its rather chaotic early period 
It was also unique among the other colonies of its time because its original setup more resembled a feudal state than what we picture of the normal British colony in North America. However, it managed to find its cash crop and began to stabilize, relying on tobacco and, to a lesser degree, rice. Finally, the last bit of Carolina background needed to establish Arthur's journey to Marshall County is to mention that North Carolina owned a rather large tract of land west of the Appalachian Mountains. Arthur's place of birth, being North Carolina, gives him common ground with many of his fellow early Tennessee settlers. In fact, North Carolina would supply the highest percentage of people coming to Tennessee all the way to the 1910s with Arthur's generation in the 1810s bringing 261,727 North Carolina residents to Tennessee alone. However, we will get to what brought the Sheffields to Tennessee in more detail in a bit. You see, before he came to Marshall County, Arthur fought in the Revolutionary War. When discussing the Revolution, many of the big names come to mind, such as George Washington, Henry Knox, and Alexander Hamilton. These are the leaders and members within the Continental Army, which was the official U.S. military that served under General Washington in the war against the British. These records tend to be a little more complete. Arthur Sheffield, however, served as a captain of the North Carolina militia when he was put in command of a company at the age of 25. While the Revolutionary War began with the fledgling nation relying on Minutemen and militia, General Washington pushed for a betterly trained Continental Army to combat the superiorly trained British troops. However, the militia was not phased out. Companies like those commanded by Captain Sheffield would often serve as a temporary aid to the Continental Army regiments that were near their areas. This means that records of the accounts of the exact whereabouts of particular militias can be a bit hard to come by. We have no way of knowing which of the five major battles of the Revolutionary War that broke out in North Carolina that Captain Sheffield may have taken part in unless it was recorded by one of the Continental Army's commanders. In our research, we could not find any of those records available. However, major battles would not tell the full story of how militias and Minutemen contributed to the war effort. If you think back to your middle school history classes or happen to be a fan of the old Andy Griffith show, you probably remember the story of the Battle of Lexington and Concord. While these battles take place far away from North Carolina, they serve as a particularly strong example of the function of the militias. These battles featured the British Army marching in rank and file to seize the colony's stash of weapons and arms. The goal was simple, in this revolution before it truly began. However, as they marched through the town of Lexington, they were held up by citizens, poorly trained and likely farmers and shopkeepers who fired on the British Army with what was most likely smooth-bore muskets. Hunting rifles become the weapon of choice in the fight for liberty in those early days. The Minutemen were easily overpowered and retreated, but they allowed enough time to pass for the arms cache to be moved, hidden away from the British intelligence. The war, it seemed, was destined to take place. As the British marched back to Boston, the Minutemen of Concord peppered them with gunfire for almost the full march back, striking from the woods and moving on further down the road to lay in wait and attack again. Guerrilla warfare proved to be the most effective fighting style for the colonial militias. You see, 
The militias of North Carolina, like their New England Minutemen counterparts, functioned to protect their homes and towns. They used the same guerrilla tactics and ambushes, avoiding fighting with the British straight up using the open field warfare tactics of the time. The British were the best trained army in the world around that time. Fighting on their turn would likely lead to certain death. The militias were more creative. This means that Captain Sheffield, whether he was present in the major battles of Carolina or not, was much more likely to see action in smaller scale skirmishes. While George Washington's Continental Army struggled to gain footing in the early going of the war in New England, the Southern Campaign happened in Virginia and the Carolinas saw many more battles won by the United States. The militias were vital to this success, often disrupting British troops as they marched from camp to camp and providing reinforcements in major attacks on the British fortifications. A militia regiment could have experienced constant action or sat around in boredom waiting for the British to enter their areas. Their job was simple, to be ready if they were needed. The militias were also not always fighting only the British regulars in these skirmishes. Several of these smaller scale battles would have seen militia forces going up against Native American units armed and aiding the British in exchange for trade and promised to have their lands left alone. They also would see action against troops of Tories, also known as Loyalists. One of the most famous battles of this time that happened in the area was the Battle of Kings Mountain. The Battle of Kings Mountain took place a little south of Sheffield, in an area that would become parts of Tennessee and South Carolina. It's a battle that involved fellow countrymen at a level that would not be seen again until the Civil War. The Patriot Militia routed the Loyalist Army there. These militias were also made up of young men, with the average age of 25, similar to Captain Sheffield's age. With many of the men being younger than that, they also were not always the most united forces, with militias resenting the command of continental officers who were not from their home state. Finally, the militias rarely stayed together for the entire lengths of the Revolutionary War. Often they disbanded after a couple years of protecting their homes. These men still had farms to tend to or else they would lose everything they were fighting to protect. As the Revolutionary War came to a close, soldiers like Captain Sheffield returned home, now with the promise of the liberty and the pursuit of happiness by his new country. So, what led Captain Sheffield to Marshall County? Join us on the other side of our break for the founding of the Sheffield Farm and one of Marshall County's earliest settlers. Today's episode of The Book of Marshall is sponsored by Dairy Queen of Lewisburg, located at 850 North Ellington Parkway in Lewisburg, Tennessee. At DQ, we flip for blizzards. The MCHS History Club is dedicated to researching our local history, but we also have a goal of connecting with our greater community. This month, Abby Perryman was able to catch up with our Mayor Mike Kenny to discuss the importance of our local municipality and government. Hi, I'm Abby Perryman, a senior member of the MCHS History Club, and I'm here with... Marshall County Mayor Mike Kenny. What exactly does a mayor do? You know, the mayor's got a lot of tasks. The main thing is he's kind of the, the of course, he's the leader of the county. He uh, oversees uh, a lot of the policies and procedures that the county adopts. He's kind of the point person for um, issues that arise. He's kind of an information gatherer uh, on uh, issues that are, are facing our county, facing maybe our, our area as well. Uh, so the, the mayor's kind of the point person on a lot of different issues that, that come forth. What do you think the most important role of a mayor is? I think the uh, an important role of a mayor, one, is being a good leader. Uh, and being a good leader requires that, uh, that you're a good listener, that you listen to the people, that you understand what they're trying to say, that, they, that people have a voice. Uh, and then you go forth and you try to 
implement things uh, and policies, procedures that uh, hopefully benefit the lives of the people of, uh, of our county. And why do you think it's important to support local government? I always, when I always talk to uh, groups, especially uh, young people, I always say local government will have more impact on your lives than, than a, everybody gets caught up in things that are happening at a state level, national level, and yes, those are important, but on a local aspect, uh, your local governments have a huge impact on your life. They set your tax rate. Uh, they set different policies and procedures for your county. Uh, and and I, I always ask people, do you know who your commissioners are? Do you know who your city councilmen are? So many people don't. And, uh, and that's kind of sad. And, and I always challenge people, you need to know who your commissioners are. You need to know uh, what's going on in the county. You need to be aware of the things that are happening because those are going to come closer to impacting your day-to-day -day life more than anything else that, 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 that's out there. She also connected with MCHS alumni Kimberly Anderson to reminisce about her times at MCHS and see what she is up to now. Hello, this is Abby Pearman, a senior member of the Marshall County History Club. I'm here with Kimberly Anderson. What years did you attend Marshall County High School? I attended Marshall County High School from the fall of 1979, which was my sophomore year, until I graduated as a senior in the class of 1982. What is your favorite memory of MCHS? As a teacher, my favorite memory is in 2009, our school was um, recognized as Cool School of the Week on Channel 4 News. And uh, all of our students came to school at 3 a.m. And we had a big celebration. We were featured on the news and we got to feature the top 10 things of our school that everybody enjoyed the most. And it was, we had 500 kids here at three o'clock in the morning and it was a really big deal and one of my favorite things that we've ever done here. As a student um, and an alumni, my favorite um, thing was pep rallies and ball games and I was really, really involved in everything at Marshall County High School and I was also on the yearbook staff. Okay, thank you. Last, the MCHS History Club would like to thank our greatest supporters and that's you. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. If you like what we are doing, please follow or subscribe to stay up to date on each chapter of the Book of Marshall. And don't forget to leave us a review. We are so thankful for our community and for your support. After his service in the war, Arthur and Lucretia spent some time living in Halifax County, North Carolina, according to the tax records from 1783. The Sheffields also saw several additions to their family as well, and all told, they would have at least eight sons and five daughters. In the bigger picture of the United States post-revolution, once the United States had settled and drafted its constitution by the early 1790s, many of the territories west of the Appalachian Mountains found themselves experiencing a population boom. Land was available at rates that were too good to pass up. After a false start at statehood with the state of Franklin, settlers complained that North Carolina was not doing a good job protecting them. North Carolina decided to give their land west of the Appalachians to the federal government in New York. They needed to pay off debts from the Revolutionary War. It was the selling of this land that opened the door for Arthur and Lucretia Sheffield to move to Marshall County. 
For the Sheffields, this was an opportunity for them to establish a family farm and legacy in an area of fresh resources and possibilities. Arthur would purchase an initial 150-acre tract of land as North Carolina sought to sell off these land grants in Tennessee on August 23, 1813. They paid $337 for the full tract of land. This would be a little over $6,200 in today's money adjusted for inflation. The family wasn't alone in their migration to Tennessee. We mentioned earlier that 261,727 North Carolinians moved to Tennessee in the 1810s. This was an increase of nearly 148%. This indicates that the seeding of the land grants and legalities tying up the land tracts in North Carolina were likely resolved as well as the establishment of Tennessee in 1796 and hope for a fresh start without the messy North Carolina political atmosphere was a catalyst to a boom period of settlers. This would see settlers bringing in families, resources, and even names as evidenced by Chapel Hill, Tennessee, sharing a name with Chapel Hill, North Carolina. The Sheffields would purchase more acreage to roughly a thousand acres located north of the Duck River around Spring Creek and make their move to what was at the time Bedford County, Tennessee. Sometime after moving to Tennessee, the family also slightly shifted their name to Sheffield. They were among the first families to move to the area. This land would remain as part of Bedford County until Marshall County was established in 1836. The Sheffield farm was part of the Bedford County land area that was added to Marshall County. This was likely no accident either. In fact, the legacy of Arthur Sheffield on Marshall County ties into the very roots of the formation of the county as one of his sons, Jason Bryant Sheffield Sr., served on the very court that was responsible for organizing Marshall County. This is where we discover another legacy, one that potentially stands against time longer than even stone, and that is family. Arthur passed away on December 26, 1824 in Chapel Hill, Tennessee. His wife, Lucretia, would pass away a little over 10 years later on July 10, 1837. However, as befits the legacy of a man whose name is etched in stone, the Sheffield story does not end here. In fact, this is where their story begins. Many of the descendants of Arthur and Lucretia Sheffield would go on to serve in various wars or serve in military duty across the next two centuries of American history, beginning with some of their own children during the War of 1812. Yet still, the legacy continues on in other ways as well. You see, the Sheffield farm is what is known as a century farm. To be a century farm, it means the farm has been owned or kept in the same family for a hundred years or more. This means the Sheffields have maintained a direct lineage of land ownership. In fact, of the 16 owners of the Sheffield farm since it was originally purchased, all of them have been direct descendants of Arthur Sheffield. The Marshall County History Club was fortunate enough to have an opportunity to meet with one of Captain Sheffield's living relatives, his five times great-granddaughter Pam Allen, to discuss his legacy and life. I'm Ella Wilson. I'm a senior in the History Club, and I'm interviewing Miss Pam Allen. So, Miss Pam, how are you related to Captain Sheffield? Arthur Sheffield was my five times great grandfather. My maternal great grandmother was a Sheffield, so you have to go back to that generation to start the Sheffields for me. 
It's amazing how close a relative you are for that time period being so long ago. So what, what, in what ways were Captain Sheffield involved in the war? Like any specific battles or anything of the, that nature? Uh, Arthur was a captain in the North Carolina militia during the Revolutionary War. He was born in 1750, and the war began around 1775, 1776. I'm not exactly sure which, when the first battle was, but he was probably about 25 years old when the war began. And as far as the battles go, he lived in around Duplin County and Halifax County in North Carolina. So since he was in the militia, the militia fought in... the would fight in the battles around their homes, and they would protect the homesteads and the people around the homes, the properties. So it's possible that his militia joined up with the Federal Continental Army, but I don't have any data on that, and I don't know any specific battles. And then he has land here in Marshall County, so who would still own that land, and how much is it? Shannon Sheffield Cook currently owns the part of the original Arthur Sheffield land, and he and his sister, Angela Cook, still live on the farm, and they are both direct descendants of Arthur Sheffield. The Sheffield farm was designated a century farm, so actually for more than 200 years, a direct descendant of Arthur Sheffield has lived on that part of the original farm. Um, Mary Sheffield, the aunt of Shannon Cook and Angela Cook, was the last owner of the farm to have the last name of Sheffield, and Mary Sheffield died in 2013. But Mary's twin sister, Martha Sheffield Cook, was the mother of Shannon and Angela, so that's how the direct lineage has stayed in place. A direct lineage is still living on the farm, but the last generation that owns it now does not have the last name of Sheffield. And then you mentioned that he was born in North Carolina, so how did he end up in Tennessee? I don't really know exactly how he ended up, except just that lots of settlers were coming in from all over the place, especially North Carolina. That was a big place when they would just go over the mountains and come into Tennessee, but they also sometimes they took a trail around through other states like South Carolina or Georgia and came up that way to Tennessee so that they didn't have to cross the mountains as bad. But the settlers were moving into new territories, including Tennessee, to make the homes after the war. There, there was a lot of territories to explore. But in 1790, Arthur Sheffield and his family moved to Chester County, South Carolina. But in the early 1800s, Arthur's son, James, went to scout out the area in Tennessee to see what they would be moving to if they went in that direction. In 1813, Arthur purchased his first part of the farm in Bedford County. It was 150 acres on Spring Creek. This part of the, the county, this part that they were settling in near Chapel Hill, was at one time in Bedford County. But they took Marshall County out of several of the surrounding counties and formed a new one named Marshall, and that was in 1836. So that's why Chapel Hill is now in Marshall County instead of Bedford County. But that also included Arthur's land. So that, that's how Arthur got to Marshall County. And then we found some things that may have indicated that his father and possibly older brothers were in the involved in the French and Indian War, and so we were wondering if he was involved in that as well. Well, I haven't found a name, the name of the for sure person that was his father. There's two different possibilities. They were 
I do think that the Sheffields that were mentioned in some of these articles were related. I think they're cousins, but I just don't, or maybe an uncle. But I couldn't find any evidence that Arthur himself was involved in the, in the Indian Wars because, for one thing, the main in French and Indian War took place from 1754 to 1763, but Arthur was born in 1750, so he would have been about 13 years old during the first part of it. So... I'm thinking that he was too young to do very much, unless it was just the last couple of years. But I don't have any evidence of anything. That's just all speculation. And then what would you, would you mind discussing some of like what you think his legacy means to you? Well, Arthur has always been somebody that I was proud of, of being related to. He fought and sacrificed during the Revolutionary War to establish our new country, the United States. Revolutionary War soldiers are patriots that we should honor and respect for their place in our history. But on a personal basis, besides being a good soldier, Arthur also had a large family that supported each other. They worked together to contribute to their communities. They were good businessmen and good citizens as well as good farmers. And I'm just very proud to be a descendant of Arthur Sheffield. There's just not a lot of heritage there in one place for so many years like there is with Arthur Sheffield. On December 17, 2022, the Sheffield Cemetery was chosen as a participant in Wreaths Across America. Miss Allen was asked to participate in the ceremony, laying a wreath on Captain Sheffield's tombstone. The wreath ceremony was Wreaths Across America. They picked the Sheffield Cemetery because it was a good size. They knew that they had some veterans in the cemetery. You have to have veterans in, to do a Wreaths Across America. So they, we got up a list, and there was about 13 or 14 veterans, I think. And of the veterans, three out of four of my grandfathers that were a veteran, I have four sets of grandparents in the Sheffield Cemetery, including Arthur. But there was, there's lots of other ones in there. Well, I thought it was a beautiful ceremony, and it was very well put together. Uh, Miss Joyce did a good job putting it together. Miss Allen is proud of the fact that farm and land has been so well maintained by the current owners, serving as a window to the past. Angela and Shannon live on the farm now. They go back to Jason Bryant Sheffield. They've done an amazing job taking care of the cemetery for, when you think about it, they have a big legacy that, that they have supported, and that's just a wonderful job because when you go see a lot of the Revolutionary War soldiers' graves, they're either... Either you can't find them, or they just had a rock there, and the rock was moved, and then you don't know where they were buried. Or it's just a lot of information that's been lost. Arthur's family has done an amazing job of taking care of the farm and the cemetery and his history. And I just think they're to be congratulated. And now located on Mount Vernon Road on what is now known as the Big Orange Country Farm, there is a small family cemetery surrounded by a rock wall. If you were to enter the iron gate and walk to your left all the way to the far corner of the cemetery under the shade of the branches of a tree, there is a stone placed there by the Robert Lewis chapter of the DAR, a stone located on the farmland that bears his family's name and ownership to this day, surrounded by similar stones of the family and lineage that were brought to Marshall County in the 1810s and continues to this day, a stone that reads, Born September 12, 1750. Departed this life December 26, 1824. Was a captain in the Revolutionary War. And the name etched on that stone, Arthur Sheffield. This was his story.
The Book of Marshall, Chapter 1, Etched in Stone. This episode of The Book of Marshall was researched and written by Ella Wilson, Sam Johnson, Jontavia Cross, and Nicholas Meredith. Hosted by Sam Johnson and Ella Wilson. Introduction and sponsorships hosted by Jontavia Cross. Mike Kenny and Kimberly Anderson interviews by Abby Perryman. Pam Allen was interviewed by Ella Wilson. Podcast was executive produced by Travis Hillis. Theme song for The Book of Marshall, Clouds, by Jay Hill. His music is available on all streaming platforms. Additional music used royalty-free can be found in the show notes with links. Any errors made in the research of this episode is purely made in good faith. Sources are provided in the episode script. We would like to thank Linda Potts and the Marshall County Historical Society for their support. Finally, we would like to thank you for listening and don't forget to leave us a five-star review. We hope to see you next time as we turn the pages of the Book of Marshall.